Good morning, everyone. So I should sort of apologize for this. This is not an attempt at hypnosis. Um, this is called My Printer Broke, and I can't figure out what's going on. So this message is not brought to you by Apple. It's brought to you by, I hope, the Lord, all right? So uh, we'll see how this works. Uh, yeah, we'll give it a go. So last week, we heard about that strong abiding desire for the Lord's presence. That was Psalm 84. Very intense longing, so intense, it was compared to things like thirst and hunger, like a homesickness for God, for his courts, for his house, this pining to be near the Lord. And notice God's presence is spoken of in that psalm like food and water, like necessities of life, not like these options of things we might desire, we might want, but necessities. It's a really strong desire. Today we're going to be in Psalm 32 in the Psalms again. And while this psalm speaks to a similar theme, the context in Psalm 32 is forgiveness. Forgiveness. And the abiding theme is the joy that comes with it, the joy of restoration, the joy of being forgiven. Um, the psalm, if you look in your, if you, you don't even have to have a study Bible, actually, but if you look in your Bible, it probably says a psalm of David, something along those lines. He's the author. Now, David knew a thing or two about forgiveness, wouldn't you say? Think about this. And this is one of these famous penitential psalms. There's about seven of them in the scriptures, sort of peppered throughout. This is the second of them. And incidentally, this was Augustine's favorite of all the penitential psalms. He really dug this one. So let me try to give you a little context for it. Some of this is conjecture, but it's worth exploring just briefly. Um, let's think of David again, author. For a long period of time after his adultery with Bathsheba and the arranged murder of her husband, David lived under the weight of what he had done. Uh, the best we can tell, about a year or so. Okay, He lived with that. Now think of this. A year of it eating away at him, a year of hiding, a year of trying to cover up what he's done. In the midst of his anguish, we know that he composed Psalm 51, creating me a clean heart, which largely is what our colic for purity is based off of. So Psalm 51 he composed in the midst of all that. Well, the companion psalm to that is ours, Psalm 32. Psalm 51 and 32 kind of go together. And again, it's up for conjecture, but some think that Psalm 32 was perhaps composed after David's deliverance. So Psalm 51 kind of in the midst of it, the throes of it, Psalm 32 after it. And if so, that means we've got hindsight. We have the benefit of hindsight. Things are clear. Things are um, more evident to us. So there's some wise words here. So it begins this way. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. I love that it begins with some beatitudes, with some blesseds are, holy contented are, uh, exuberant are those whose transgression is forgiven, uh, whose sin is covered. Now, it's interesting. There's some really vivid pictures which might escape us uh, right here in this first verse. They need some unpacking, so I want to do that really briefly. The first picture here of sin and forgiveness is transgressions being forgiven. Now, you're, you've heard that language, maybe so much so that it doesn't mean a lot to you anymore, but let me try to spell it out a little bit more. Transgression is an act of open rebellion. So it's bold and it's brash, okay? It often has a military uh, connotation, like an uprising or a surge of some sort. In other words, this is sin that is not accidental. It's premeditated. It's with, done with complete foreknowledge, right, that it's wrong, and forgiveness here has a great meaning, too, which you may have heard. Sin here is depicted as being something that's weighty, a burden, something that is oppressive. It's like a heavy yoke that just weighs us down. So to be forgiven in this context 
means that God has to lift that off of us. He has to carry that away from us, take away this awful burden of ours. And even though we've turned, torn ourselves away from the Lord, in this case, deliberately, by sin, he comes and he lifts that yoke of sin and that slavery off of us. How many of you have gone backpacking in the, in the mountains ever before? Not car camping. I mean like where you got everything you need on your back, right? Heavy, ain't it? What's it like when you... And let's say you've gone out for three or four days, something like that. Uh, so you probably got 30 to 50 pounds pretty easily on your back. What's it like at the end of the day when you get to set up camp and lose that backpack? How good does that feel? It feels pretty darn good. It's like, oh, I'm free again. I can move. I can be. I mean, you start up a hill and you're like, oh, man, I'm like a gazelle versus trudging up with that backpack. It's trudging. Okay. That's the picture here of sin and forgiveness, of transgressions and forgiveness. Okay. That weight, God takes it away from us. Okay, there's a second picture in verse 1. Again, very condensed. This is poetry. Second picture, sin and forgiveness. And it speaks of this line, whose sin is covered. Sin here has a little different nuance than transgression does, and it probably is a familiar meaning. Missing the mark. You guys have heard this before probably. Sin is missing the mark. It's like you're aiming at a bullseye, but you're just not quite hitting it. You can't hit it. Okay, it's falling short of God's standard, whether that's out of ignorance out of willful disobedience, whether it's a sins of omission or sins of commission, whatever, okay? And sins being covered here has a great, wonderful meaning. So I want to use sacrificial imagery here to give you an idea of what your sins being covered means. Under the Old Covenant, okay, under Old Testament law, the blood of goats and lambs covers the altar. It atones for sin in that way, right? But it was provisional covering that was sullied as soon as you sinned again. So you had to go back and do the same thing. The new covenant with Jesus pushes this idea even further. The blood of Jesus doesn't just cover over sin. It cleanses sin, okay? Makes us white as snow, if you heard in the songs. And then Jesus clothes us in his righteousness. That's our new clothing. That's our new covering. So that means you're, I'm clothed or I'm covered in Jesus, if you will. The baptisms, baptisms, which we're going to do a little bit later here in a few moments, are a beautiful picture of that, right? So what I want you to hear, even in just one verse, is there is this uncontainable and building sense of joy and delight at being forgiven. Okay, That begins in verse 1. It kind of builds throughout the psalm, knowing that you and God are good, that you're right with God, uh, that you've come clean, that the slate is clean there. One author puts it this way, really simple but punchy. God will never, and he's speaking about sin, God will never bring it up again, not in this life, nor in the world to come. That's pretty impressive, right? He remembers our sins no more. That's something to celebrate. David knows this. So he does. It's celebratory, right? Verse 2, second beatitude. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Again, another beatitude, another picture of forgiveness. Having your iniquity counted against you uh, my banker's ears are going to perk up right now. I know we have a few in the congregation, right? This is a financial term. This is an accounting term uh, to speak of your, having your iniquity counted against you. It's the language of reckoning in some translations. You've heard that phrase, reckoning. Your sin is reckoned to you. In other words, it's logged on the books. It's on the account statement. It's on your record. It's reckoned to you. One example, Genesis 15, 6 Abraham believed in God, and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. Or Paul in Romans 4, when people believe in the Lord, God reckons, he credits them with righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus. 
He does not reckon their sins to them. So Christ reckons, he imparts or imputes, he reckons his righteousness to us. This takes sin off the books. Someone else stepped in. Someone else paid the debt. Someone else paid the bill. There's no record of wrongs. It's erased and gone as if it never existed. So this is pretty fantastic if you think of it this way. You can almost say that God can forgive and forget, though we have a very hard time with that. The Lord doesn't count our iniquity against us. He remembers our sins no more. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. This is just a way of saying there's no falsehood, there's no duplicity, there's no guile in our confession before the Lord. In other words, it's a full, honest confession. Hiding nothing, you're naked before the Lord, sort of in every sense. And again, it's blessed to come clean before God. There's a sense of sweet relief about this. Oh, sweet relief. So, that's just two verses. A lot packed in there, right? So here's the living pictures of forgiveness in these first two verses. So we've got a person who's had the yoke of slavery, of sin removed, okay? It's been taken away and carried off. We've got that. Sin is covered over. Sin is taken care of. And remember no more. That's another aspect. And we've been reckoned righteous by God. So it is any wonder that David's response is one of joy. I mean, that we begin with blessed is the person who, blessed is this, counts himself as blessed. There's relief. This is the sweetness of restoration. It's very sweet. But, or and, uh, what did it look like before the forgiveness came? And I find this really helpful, right? Uh, Verses three through five, describe this, what it's like to lug around the millstone of sin around your neck. It focuses on what that experience is like for us. What is the misery of hiding, in other words? What is it like to carry around the growing cancer of some sort of hidden or unconfessed sin? And David obviously had some doozies, so you can imagine this. So we move into verses 3 through 5, and that tells us what was it like? What was it like before this this sweet relief came? Uh, And I won't spend a ton of time here, but just pay attention to the images here. When I kept silent, when I kept it to myself, my bones wasted away. I groaned all day. There's like this tremendous sense of spiritual lethargy, like my strength was sapped as by the heat of summer. I lived in Arizona. I know what that feels like. It's real. Uh, Day and night, in other words, all the time, your hand was heavy upon me. What I want you to get from this, uh, especially in verses uh, 3 and 4, is this is just a picture of conviction, This is a picture of conviction. This is holy, godly guilt. There is such a thing as good guilt. (laughs) Holy, godly guilt. And that's this. This is when the Holy Spirit is convicting you as you're trying to run or flee or hide. That's sort of what's going on here. This is a vivid picture of the refusal to confess. Right? This is David talking about before he he wasn't willing to admit it. He tried to run away from God. This is a picture of that refusal to confess. Now, there's a gajillion reasons why we don't want to confess sometimes. Um, we might rational away, rationalize away our sin like, I haven't really done anything wrong. Uh, maybe it's, you know, I don't need to confess. I'm one of God's own. I'm good. Maybe it's you're caught in the cycle of addiction, can't stop. I mean, there's a, there's a ton of reasons. And some reasons, they're, in some sense, they're maybe irrelevant. But I want you to see here, regardless, the picture here is really accurate. When you've done something wrong, or you're currently doing something wrong, your conscience is troubled. That's the Holy Spirit in you, bugging you, eating away at you. It feels heavy, okay? That's conviction. So uh, this isn't exactly a picture of someone who lives in freedom, is it? 
I mean, that doesn't sound like a fun existence because sin oppresses us. Sin enslaves us. It does not set us free, and all the more when it's hidden because it gains power. Um, so when sin remains hidden, as in this case, this is a phrase that I just throw around because it makes sense to me. Spiritually speaking, nothing good grows in the dark. Nothing good grows in the dark. In the dark, sin festers, and it grows, and it gains power, and it gains strength and momentum. I have to say, uh, I, haven't, I don't have you know, decades and decades in uh, ordained ministry, but I will say this. I haven't heard a single positive example of someone who dealt with their sin privately by trying to hide it, deny it, stuff it, not deal with it. Not once. Never heard one positive, positive example of that, because sin requires light to dispel it. You've got to bring it into the light. Plus, think of this. How much energy goes into concealing something? That is a lot of energy to conceal something. It's a, it takes immense energy to do this. It steals your joy in the process. Hiding is exhausting. And God knows it anyway, right? So there's a picture here that we see in verses 3 and 4. It's of a I guess you could say a spiritual depression, something that we see affects the whole person, body, soul, spirit, everything. In short, the whole person is affected by this. And in the end, this refusal to confess brings about godly discipline, which some of you go, oh boy. But remember this, God loves us too much to leave the cancer of sin unattended and unaddressed. He loves you too much to leave those things alone. The Lord disciplines those he loves, right? It's from the scriptures. And David is describing, in somewhat vivid poetic terms, godly discipline, all right? Thank the Lord, we get to verse 5. It doesn't end there. That would be a bummer of a psalm if it did, right? Uh, 5, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Okay, this is the divine turn. Here we go. Okay? I named my sin. I came out of hiding. This is the sweet relief of confession. I stopped trying to cover it up, uh, and I acknowledged it. And part of the acknowledgement there is just saying, I can't heal myself. <laughs> I cannot make myself better. I need God to intervene. So I brought my sin before the Lord. And there's a couple of words for this coming clean in verse 5. Acknowledge is one of them. That's the meaning sort of obvious there. Uh, but there's one speaking of confession. Uh, and that has a richer meaning. So I want to explore that a little bit. I, can, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Um, it means when you confess in this way, it is done. It presumes a communal context. There is some public nature to it. In the sanctuary, people might not know the details of why or story of someone's confession. They might not know that, but they would know that a confession of sin was being made in that case. This is a healthy, very countercultural example in our day and age of rugged individualism, i.e. confession is not just between Jesus and me. Okay, It actually has a corporate or a communal element to it. That's part of bringing what's hidden out into the light. In other words, we invite some trusted brothers and sisters into our struggles. Okay, We have those folks. Doesn't mean the whole world needs to know about it, but you need some folks in the battle with you. You've got to have that. So David sees uh, confession as absolutely essential 
Okay? Absolutely. A fundamental building block of forgiveness. Uh, when we name something, we bring what's hidden into the light, and God can work with that. God can work with that. You forgave the iniquity of my sins. And that's the punch at the end of five. Okay? Moving on. Uh, I think I'll do a couple of verses here. Therefore, this is verse six. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You're my hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Well, there's a bit of a shift here that therefore tips us off to that, right? There's a shift here. David wants to, in a sense, encourage us. He wants to encourage the faithful here with his life as an example. Look, guys, here's what I've learned, and I've learned it the hard way. Uh, let me save you some time and some misery. <laughs> uh, look at my life. So let's all confess and, and kind of throw ourselves on God's mercy, okay? So David's wanting to offer some encouragement here. Uh, lest we forget, uh, quite a few of the Psalms David wrote, and they were part of Israel's worship. They were part of their worship every single Sabbath. Psalms were read or chanted or sung. We're not fully sure. But think about this. David's life, foibles and all, were a testimony of God's saving power, and they were public. <laughs> I mean, think about that. Do you know of any current worship leaders gutsy enough to publicly lay out their life and failures like that? I mean, you want to redefine authentic worship? That would do the trick, don't you think? I think so. Uh, it's very raw and it's very real. I love that David uh, puts his life out there in that way. And David seems to equate, if you look at these verses, forgiveness with deliverance. Interesting. He equates forgiveness with actual deliverance. There's some urgency there for him, right? Seek the Lord while he may be found. There's actually something at stake here for David, I think. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Now, you can find very strong echoes in Jesus' parables sort of along these lines, right? Uh, there'll be a day of reckoning, a day of judgment, the day of the Lord might come, and you might not be ready for it. So you'll want to get right with the Lord before that day. The Lord is long-suffering, desires that none should perish, but he won't wait forever, okay? So Jesus and John the Baptist as well, they're crystal clear on this point in the Gospels. And the rest of the New Testament speaks about the second coming of Jesus in similar terms. So a day of reckoning, it's coming. So the message here is don't wait. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Seek him now, okay? Don't miss the window of opportunity. Follow those nudges of the Holy Spirit. God prompts us. We need to be faithful to respond. Easy way to remember it, uh, Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, okay? That's it. Now, I want you to look at the imagery that David uses to describe this deliverance. The urgency of a rising flood waters. That's this great rush of water she's speaking of. Okay, that sounds fairly urgent. Not something to dally over, right? In the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. The Lord here is that safe refuge. He's the place where the waters won't overcome me. The Lord is our ark. You'll hear about that in the baptism. He's our deliverer in the midst of rising waters of judgment. He's our hiding place, our secret place. We're protected. We're surrounded with songs of deliverance, which are loud shouts, songs of joy. Now, I mean, all this imagery, this idea of being encircled by God, engulfed, encompassed, enfolded, shielded, protected, I love it. It's not unlike a vulnerable baby who's tucked safely away in their mother's womb. 
And what would a good mother do to protect her child? Anything. <laughs> Mama bear syndrome, right? Powerful image. There's a tremendous comfort in that. Uh, moving to eight and nine. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I'll counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule <clears throat> without understanding, which must be curbed with brit and bit and bridle, excuse me, or it will not stay near you. Now, there's another, another shift here in the psalm. Uh, David isn't speaking anymore. This is God, <laughs> okay? Uh, this is the Lord, or David is relaying to us something. Maybe the Lord revealed to him, but the result is the same. The Lord's weighing in here. Okay? He begins to instruct, and God's promises that follow here, when he says, I will instruct, I will teach, I will counsel, these are all plural. They're all y'all. I will instruct y'all. I will teach y'all. I will counsel y'all. These are God's promises. Okay? God's promises over us and for us. I will do these things. I know where you should go, the Lord's saying. I'll lead you. I'll teach you. I'll provide you with wisdom and counsel. I'll watch over you as you journey through this life, right? I'm benevolent and I'm vigilant over you. My eyes upon you, right? God doesn't sleep. Thanks be to God, he never sleeps. In other words, you can trust me, okay? I have these promises, you can trust me. So don't be like the horse and the mule. In other words, don't be stubborn. Don't be stiff-necked. You'll hear that in the Old Testament a lot. In other words, have a teachable spirit. <laughs> Learn, work with God, not against God. Folks, God does not delight in trying to force us into doing the right thing. He really doesn't. He doesn't. That's the bit and the bridle and the horse and the mule imagery. He doesn't delight in that. He doesn't discipline us indiscriminately, and he doesn't bring correction lightly. Often, it's his last resort after a lot of divine patience, right? The Lord isn't interested in trying to force you with bit and bridle into making wise decisions. <laughs> that's not plan A. He'd rather partner with a willing participant who has a teachable heart and that will receive instruction, counsel, correction. Okay? Wrapping it up, last two verses. And at this point, kind of a pause in the sermon. Ushers, can you go get our kids from downstairs? That would be lovely. And also, if you have any kids three and under, you'll want to go get them now as well. The kids participate in the baptism. That's why we're sending these guys out. So, so ushers... You guys can get the kids, uh, parents with kids three and under. Go grab those little ones. Thank you. Unpause. All right. Conclusion. Verses 10 and 11. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Verse 10 is kind of like the summation. Here's what we learned. It's a little bit like a little bitty proverb. God's unfailing love, his hesed, his covenant faithfulness, it surrounds us. It surrounds us, enfolds us, just like those songs of deliverance in verse 7, just like being in a mother's womb, just like being under the shadow of the, uh, the wings of the Almighty. God's faithfulness encircles us. It engulfs us. It encompasses us. It shields us. So, uh, no longer do we lean on our ability to manage our sin, to hide it, or to deliver ourselves. Those things don't surround us, carefully chosen word, any longer. God's promises do. Okay? Verse 10 highlights, one last time, the choice between the misery of hiding versus the freedom and joy of confession and restoration. Okay? And verse 11 is, is, is kind of the... 
it's the so what. You know, it's kind of the call to action. The, here's what we're going to do. Uh, and again, there's that building sense of joy and delight in being forgiven. And it really comes into full picture here. It's like a locomotive that's gained momentum all through these verses, and now it's at full speed by the end of the psalm. Uh, this is our response. Given what we've received from God, let's rejoice. Let's sing. Let's shout for joy. Let's celebrate this restoration. It's the absolute bliss of forgiveness. I pray you've tasted this before. I do. There's a sweetness to it that is like nothing else. So that's Psalm 32. So let's back up a little bit from it. Take the 30,000-foot view. Uh, sometimes people ask me. Uh, they're usually not within the Anglican tradition, but sometimes they are. Why do you guys confess every week? What's up with that? And some of the subtext there is, is something like this. Your sin's are already forgiven, right? So why do you need to do that? You're already a new creation in Christ. Why do you need to do that? You know, if Jesus already died for my sins, why do I need to confess? Like, what's up with that? What's the point? Is it just so God can remind you that, you know, he thinks you're a worm or a ne'er-do-well? I don't think so. No. Why do we confess every week? You know why? For our own good. <laughs> We're not telling God something he needs to know. It's not like, let me let you in on a little secret. I did, you know, X, Y, Z. No, it's for our own good. It's for our own good. God loves us too much to leave our hidden sin unaddressed and unconfessed. He wants us to unburden our souls. He wants us to be lighter. And perhaps it's more urgent than we tend to think of it. What if we tended to think about sin as spitting out poison? Imagine, this is interesting for me, imagine what confession might look like if we literally believed sin was lethal, right? That it was harmful, that it would poison us, that it was like cancer. Confession would look a little bit different in our liturgy, I suspect. Maybe, I don't know. Confession is spiritually essential and it's healthy. It's healthy. It's why it's a part of our recurring spiritual diet in the liturgy. Every week, every week. Uh, this might mean confessing to a pastor priest. It might mean going, Fred or Joel, I need to talk to you. i got to unburden, unburden my heart. It might mean that. And or it might mean bringing some trusted brothers and sisters into the mix, saying, man, here is where I'm struggling, and I'm in the belly of the beast. Would you pray for me? Okay, so it might mean one or both of those, okay? The call is the same. Don't remain hidden. Don't remain isolated when you're struggling with sin. Don't keep it to yourself. James 5.16, familiar verse to some of you. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you might be healed. So that you might be healed. The implication is that sin is sickness and that confession might bring about some healing of your soul. That is a tremendous promise. Have you ever thought of it that way? That confession might be healing for you, that God... Letting him shine his light into your heart might actually bring about some healing there, healing in your soul. So I don't have any, I usually kind of pepper you with questions at the end. I don't have any questions for you. Just a simple uh, call. Um, and again, I would be pretty surprised if any of you, you know, uh, had someone murdered and committed adultery as David did, right? Those are big sins. We tend to go, wow, I can't quite relate to that. This can be small as well, okay? But the, my words here are the same. My, my ask here, my admonition is the same. Come out of hiding. 
Take all that energy that you're putting into hiding. Just let it go. Let it go. Ask for forgiveness. Receive God's healing mercies. There's a few ways you can do that. We do, we do absolutes and confession most weeks in our liturgy. Uh, we have a prayer desk right out through those double doors that during communion is open and has folks there to pray for you. Maybe that's a thing you want to employ today. But come out of hiding. Ask and receive forgiveness and receive God's healing mercies. Amen? Amen.